The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In my study, ongoing studies, at the Free University of Amsterdam, there is a girl in our study group uh, who's doing research, religious research, into uh, Vedic Hinduism. Now, the remarkable thing about this degree program that I'm now embarked on, sorry, you'll hear about it a little bit, but in this degree program, I, it's remarkable the amount of toleration that this school has for evangelicals. Uh, my supervisor, as far as I can tell, is a born-again believer, and he is also uh, respected by his colleagues of different uh, uh, religious background. And in the ed educational model that is there, we review proposals for research. And so I had the chance to review a research proposal from somebody who was studying Hinduism, Hindu spirituality. And as I reviewed that proposal, uh, she had intent to uh, understand how Hindu spirituality might be beneficial for helping employers and employees dealing with the change that's occurring internationally uh, in what's called the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, you might not realize that we're on the verge of entering into a new industrial revolution, uh, but there was a first before there was a fourth. The first uh, was the introduction of steam and, uh, and, and mechanical power usage, and the second was electric, electricity came into play and mass production, and then we've gone into a third in which technology and automation has started to take off. We're in the fourth, where there's a kind of like a fusion of biological and grafting in of the technological. If you can't picture what that would look like, think about cochlear implants and mechanical devices being put into people that can have Bluetooth devices that transmit, okay? That's kind of where we're moving towards in, in this revolution of where we're going. And uh, her research is intended to discover how Hindu spirituality might, might help people deal with change. And I believe it's a truly compassionate uh, research project because a lot of people feel very, very disconnected and very uprooted when there is massive change. I think we all felt that this year, didn't we? in which all of our systems that we depended upon were suddenly distorted, uprooted, and we had to deal with some of those changes. Now, her, her intentions are compassionate, but the foundation of her research is flawed. 
because she presupposes an interconnectedness of all of our existences as the very nature of existence. In other words, we are deeply connected to the universe all together, spiritually. It's a it's a remarkable worldview, and just to illustrate what that means, it's, it's like saying this, that God is in the universe, just as you are in your own body. That's how Hinduism operates, that your body, just as your body is only a part of you, in the same way, God has a physical body, and it's this natural universe and the mental movements of God changes and moves the universe. And so if we can get interconnected into the mind of God, then we can deal with the changes that are going on around us. Now, that worldview is called panentheism. Literally, that means all in God. Now, that view sounds really enlightened, right? It sounds really, really deep, but it has pitfalls. And the greatest pitfall of all is that then God becomes dependent upon the universe, a universe that's in decay, a universe that is, has contamination with evil. So then that means that there must be a real evil in God. And that's where it falls short of the glory of God. And so I, I, I wanted to bring this up because Christianity, on the other hand, demonstrates that the universe is not dependent upon God in that sense. Did I say that the other round? Yeah, God is, yeah, really important, yeah. God is not dependent on the universe, and that's the critical difference. Thank you. God is not dependent on the universe. He upholds the universe, but he is not dependent upon it. And why I bring this up, because in this text that we read this morning, we see indications that God is independent of the universe and exerts his will upon the universe. And so that should give us the ability as Christians to be able to withstand seismic change in the universe. We have a hopeful alternative to Hinduism. We are not dependent on, upon a God who is dependent upon the universe. We are dependent upon God who controls the universe. And there's a huge difference, and it ought to affect the way we outlook in life, and it ought to give every person that we come into contact with a reason to ask us, what is the basis of your hope? We see a world that's changing and distorting, and we shouldn't be paralyzed by what we see. We ought to be living confidently, knowing that he rules over all. This text is remarkable because it's like the last, you know, prophetic message to the people as they're getting ready to rebuild the temple. And they're in the process of rebuilding the temple in uncertain times, and there's seismic changes happening in their world. And they're wondering whether or not we can actually do this. And there's two 
two dynamic acts of God that are declared in these verses, and I want to highlight these. And in verses 20 to 22, the very first several verses, we see a declaration that the day of the Lord is his day. Any judgment that God brings upon the earth is his, and he's not affected by it. He is the one who affects that judgment upon the world, and so therefore, we can't control it. He is the one who's in charge of it. And so, I want to point out how I see this in, verse, in these verses. Three times, the Spirit through Haggai says, I am about to shake the kingdoms and the heavens and the earth. In verse 22, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And in verse 23, even, it says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. This is God himself declaring his legislative will for the world. Really important for us to see that it is the Lord's day, the day of judgment is his, and it's his alone. We can stand by and watch, but he is the one who's in charge. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail in terms of the eschatology timeline this morning of when this is going to occur, but we all intuitively know that the judgment of the Lord is coming, that this world cannot avoid the end of which sin has taken it, and we have to recognize that. But what I want to point out this morning is some of the upheaval that is described in this text that's going to be coming in the day of the Lord in which it comes. And the first is that there is a cosmological upheaval that's described in verse 21. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. The word shake there literally means to cause to tremble, to cause to shake violently. Have you ever experienced an earthquake. Have you ever been standing there and feeling the, the ground shaking? Raise your hand. How many have experienced that? Okay, I'm also holding my hand up because I've experienced that as well. And it's a remarkable thing because it, it first comes about as a, a jarring shock, slight pause, and then traumatic rolling that starts to take place. Now, depending on the severity of that seismic shift, you may have things start to shift on the walls, right? And structurally, we've seen the damage that remarkable uh, earthquakes can, can produce. And I'm so thankful that I live in northeast Pennsylvania, where these things are very rare. I don't know how people live in California on, that, on the San Andreas fault line, Eventually, that thing's just going to split wide open. I don't know how you would even mentally cognate life like that. But again, there's a lot that we can be thankful for. But there's going to be no escape. This dramatic, cosmic shaking. That's the point. When God decides to shake the earth, there will be no escape, and there'll be nothing that we can do about it. 
Now, I believe personally that the church will be brought out of the world during the great day of the Lord's judgment, and I don't have the time to go into all those arguments this morning. But what's important to realize is that when we see the pains of creation, it's an indication that the great day of the Lord is coming. And anytime we see cosmic shakes, rattles, movements, we have to recognize that we're not ultimately able to thwart what God intends to do. Now, that might cause us a degree of anxiety, but it shouldn't. It should cause us to recognize that that we serve a God who is outside of creation. And yet, He very specifically looks at us as His creation and decides to redeem us and to protect us and to shelter us. He is Lord over all, but He is compassionate and cares for each one of His children. I want to move quickly here to the political upheaval that's described in verse 22. And I want us to think meditatively on what these, these upheavals mean. In verse 22, he says he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. The word overthrow there means to flip. Like to flip. Um, like a pancake. Like you can, as long as you've greased your pan well and it doesn't stick, Right? It's like an effortless flip over to the other side. That's the word picture in which is being described here that God can effortlessly flip kingdoms and redirect them in any way that he so chooses. That is his liberty to do so. And the strength of kingdoms there refers to the economic, the international power that's invested in them, And it causes us to stop and consider the the times that we live in, doesn't it? Even in the last hundred years, there was a time period in which uh, President Wilson said that there would be a new order, a new order of nations that would be uh, engaged in the pursuit of securing world peace. You remember that? Well, we don't remember it physically. None of us were there in 1911 when this occurred, and the League of Nations started to become a thing. But that didn't do a very good job of preserving the order. God allowed, God directed, God allowed some groups of people like Hitler and others to unrest and disable the world peace at that time. And the political, the political situation in Europe actually has been tenuous for centuries. Anytime there's been a little bit of a peace, there's all, almost within a generation a flip that goes another direction. That continual upheaval, the seasons of order and disorder are, are not ours to manage. I think it would be fair to describe that the last eight years, regardless of one's political perspective, have been a destabilizing time in which there has been a flip. Flip. I, I'm not, can't be the only one who saw this. 
We're talking about radical flip of policies. But we need to understand that this doesn't catch God by surprise. And he allows certain policies in place to cause his people to wake up and not rely upon the systems that exist, but to cause us to reflect and rest upon God alone for our security. God is the one who changes the times and the seasons. He is the one who removes kings and sets up other kings. We also see in these verses military upheaval, verse 22, at the very end of verse 22. And the horses and their riders shall go down, and everyone by the sword of his brother. Now, the ancient world considered chariots to be military might. Now, we look at that and say, well, we've got intercontinental ballistic missiles. We've got nuclear-powered submarines. That was cutting-edge technology in their day. But what is communicated here is that everyone by the sword of his brother can dismantle any supposed strength. And he's, this is a, a communication that God is able to take military strength, and we see countries like China and Russia and America posed in mutual destructive stratagems, right? Nuclear power. Our peace is tenuous. But God is able to cause brothers to turn on brothers to bring deliverance for people who are oppressed. That is the power that our God has to turn people who think that they have the edge against their enemies and have it turn against them. That can happen to us here in America, too. We're not exempt from this. And so what this means is that we don't put our confidence and trust in the nuclear silos that exist in our reservoir and, and, and our ability to protect ourselves. God is able to, if you will, at his own wishes, cause a false flag to fly and ignition, ignition of uh, nuclear rockets into the sky. It could happen at any time. Where are we putting our trust? We have to put our trust in the Lord who is able to turn even brothers against oneself. Now, you can think about historical church. You can, hear, you can think about the Scriptures and you think of the book of Judges. You want to see a case in point, look at the story of Gideon. Remember Gideon had 300 men? And he went out around the, the, the mountain range, and each, each of these men had torches, and they sounded the horn. And then all of a sudden, the folks in the, the enemy in the valley turned on one another and destroyed one another. That's, that's an example of God's divine intervention to upturn and overturn. Now, I think we, we need to understand that we all, we all value peace. We want peace. And there's nothing wrong with that desire. However, when we put our confidence in God, who is dependent on creation, like spiritual Hindu spiritualism, we're putting our trust in a very weak God. 
You know, none of us may ever read the Vedas, the Hindu sacred texts, but we can have our faith shaken. We can look around and be filled with fear and anxiety and forget and act as though God is dependent upon his creation. That is a lie of the devil. God is not dependent upon his creation whatsoever. He is transcendent and he is Lord over all. It's him that we need to put our confidence and faith in. Think about the scripture reading this morning, Psalm 46, right? Though the mountains be moved and they be hurled into the sea, what is our response as believers to be? It's to behold the works of the Lord and wonder and give him the glory. You know, that's a dynamic act of God that's being described in this text, but there is a second one that we see in the prophecy regarding Zerubbabel himself, and that is by by looking down the lens and the halls of prophecy, we can see this as referring to the dominion of Jesus, which was foreordained. Zerubbabel is a, a little example of what the future Messiah would be. But yet this was intended to encourage this little Messiah, if you will, this little guy, this little guy in Jerusalem who's facing all of this conflict around him, trying to build, that God had purposely put him there for good things, divine purposes. And this last verse, it says, On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Zerubbabel is called my servant. He is called my chosen one, my signet ring. And each one of these little titles are intended to to give recognition that we as believers and he as Zerubbabel could live confidently in a turbulent world. First, he's described as my servant. Why is he called my servant? Well, from the very beginning of creation, God had chosen a servant to tend to God's garden. His name was Adam. Adam was the first son, the first servant of God. Adam, as God's chosen one, failed. He sinned, and he committed iniquity. And he was thrust out of that garden. Now, when Adam was obedient to the word of God, he was living in a faithful way. He was being a good servant. After him, generation after generation, many sons were born, and each of these sons were supposed to live and follow God's will as a servant. Some of them did well. Others did not. In fact, even the ones who did well were not perfect. They were not perfect servants, able to carry out God's God's word in complete entirety. You think of Moses. Moses was a servant of God, wasn't he? But yet, he wasn't permitted to enter into the promised land because he had fallen short. And he 
in anger, rebuked and, and banged on that rock, giving a false representation of what God intended. David also was at times called the servant of the Lord, wasn't he? But David fell short of the perfect standard of a true servant. Elijah was called a servant of the Lord. Can you believe it? Even a Gentile like Nebuchadnezzar was even called a servant of the Lord. All of these are pictures forward to the true servant, the, one, the need for a true servant that would come, a second Adam. And his name was Jesus, who was the true servant that we could never have ever been because of our sin nature. But notice that there's a second word here. He's described as, as my chosen one. And this serves to highlight God's sovereign choice and special selection of Zerubbabel for this task at this time. And it speaks figuratively of Jesus as well because Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel. And you can go and look in the book of Matthew, and you can see the, the lineage as it's describing all the way from David, all the way through Zerubbabel, all the way to Jesus. King David was selected to be king, and in a similar way, Jesus was also selected even before he came into the world. Zerubbabel was selected by God for this particular season and for this time. Jesus, who came in the line of Zerubbabel, is the true servant, the true son, the chosen one. Jesus was foreknown, he was predestined for this purpose. And this is very relevant to Jesus because the offspring of Zerubbabel is Jesus, and the offspring of Jesus is who? not rocket science. It's us who believe. This is a, 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 a foundational and important truth for us all to recognize that because of Christ, we are also his sons, his chosen ones, here for a particular purpose and a season. This is the background in which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because of Christ, we are sons, chosen ones, servants who will sing the praises of God's glorious grace. These are dynamic acts of God that we have no influence over. Just like the day of judgment. It's God's and his alone. He's also described as a signet ring. A signet ring. What is a signet ring? Well, a signet ring was worn on the hand of a king, and it maybe looked like, you know, university rings, those big honking things that people wear, and in clay, soft clay, or some sort of like wax that in later centuries, they would take their ring and they would 
in, stamp it into the seal or into the clay. And so when the edict went out, it was validated by the king's signet ring. Only he had that ring. Only he had that authority. What does it mean that Zerubbabel is the signet ring on God's hand? It means that Zerubbabel was in place to do the will of God. To do the will of God. And what this means is that we cannot carry out God's purposes independent of God. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. On our own, we cannot carry out God's purposes, and so God gives us the Holy Spirit, doesn't He? He gives us His gift of the Holy Spirit, and in contrast to the Hindu spiritualism that I talked about this morning, we, in a unique way as the church, carry out God's purposes in this world. When the power of the Holy Spirit, as we display the love of God for one another, we carry out God's will in the season. Now, it's not a perfect situation that we're living in, is it? We have churches in Canada that are being locked, and people are being told they can't assemble. That's very close to my life. But the reality is, King Jesus knows about all this. And we don't have to wring our hands and worry. We need to be faithful in following and doing His will. It is the Holy Spirit as God's gift to the believer and to the church body that we are able to carry out His will. We live in a world that's in decay. There's changes taking place. Paul knew this to be true, and he said this in Romans chapter 8. He said this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He didn't say that God's groaning, did he? It's the creation that's groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan because we long for the new. And the gift of the Holy Spirit within us is groaning not because of the creation, necessarily, so much as it's anticipating the new. It wants the new. It's like a, a mom who's like nine months pregnant and says, I can't wait to have that baby. Right? There's a longing for the new. And we are going through seismic changes as a nation, internationally, and I'm not a prophet, but I'm a person who can see changes like any of you and stop and have to wonder what is going on. But when we ask ourselves that question, what is going on, we ought to be then taking courage in the Lord who is not dependent upon this creation. 
The people of God can live courageously in light of Jesus' triumph. Jesus entered into this creation. He took on human flesh. He died. And when he resurrected, he planted the seeds for the future for all of us. We have the hope of recreation after we expire, our bodies expire. And we can live courageously now in light of these truths. We can take courage. Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 8 and said, if these things are true, who can be against us? And he said in Romans 8, verse 29 to 30, he said, For those for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see... Jesus birthed us into existence. We are his sons, and we're in this process of being kept and sealed and saved for the coming recreation of the world. Jesus is coming again, and we're going to reign triumphantly upon the earth. We look forward to that day. And what we do in the absence of our living king in our physical presence, we remember his death, burial, and resurrection. We look at the communion elements and we, we gaze upon them and our hearts can be filled with wonder. They ought to be filled with humility to recognize that this was done for us and that he's coming again. And so I would invite you this morning as we prepare ourselves to, to worship around the table in the last segment of our, our worship to examine in your hearts, have we been overly fearful of change that we're seeing in our world? Have we not had a viewpoint that Jesus is on the throne ruling and reigning at the right hand? How are we living in light of this truth? I would encourage you to examine your heart and come to the Savior. He is glorious to save. He is glorious to forgive. And I would encourage you uh, to take that time.